0: Welcome to the show, we often talk about the fact that hospitality is one of the only industries in which you can start at the bottom in an entry level job and end up in the C-suite. Renee Bagshaw doesn't work in hotel operations but she is a great example of this same phenomenon. Her first job in construction was an administrative position at a flooring company And she is now Chief Operating Officer of Continental Contractors and holds contractor's licenses in 19 different states. Renee's career is a testament to the power of saying yes. And I'm not even going to dwell on the fact that she's a woman in a very male-dominated industry. Renee and I are going to talk about adulting why it's important to be nice, and how she's secretly a software engineer in her spare time. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404- Nine six three zero. Today we have a question from Ricardo, and this is going to sound on its face like a very simple question, but I think it's actually more complicated than that. So Ricardo's question is: How often are hotels supposed to get a renovation? What do you think, Renee? Hmm. Well, like
1: every other year would be great. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: every um, 18
0: months. That's a construction months, yes, perspective. Okay. Um, got
1: it. So it's typically between five and ten years, seven years being average-ish. But every time a property changes brands, um, that triggers a pip, which is a property improvement plan. So that is about the average time frame, about seven years. Now you do have markets that don't need to be renovated that frequently. For example, right here in Maryland, we've got Ocean City. A lot of those are non-branded properties and they have not been renovated in a
0: very long time. <laughs> and so when you say they don't need to be renovated, it's because they're not being forced to, not necessarily because they're in the best shape in the world. Right, they are <laughs> in
1: sometimes terrible shape, sometimes just tired, uh, but they're still filling up to capacity during the summer months and there's no brand telling them that they have to maintain specific standards so they're able to get away with dragging that time frame out to you know every 15 years. So but typically branded properties are on
0: average every 7 years or so. Understood. So I guess when it, you know if I owned a hotel and I was thinking about it the perspective should be I should renovate as often as I need to to keep attracting guests. I mean, that sounds like a very sim- simplified way to put it. But sometimes I think we get bogged down in the whole pip and like, what's? how do I add value to the asset? And basically, how you add value to the asset is keep people coming. Right. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. And you'll know. You'll get customer satisfaction scores that will tell you. They're not going to lie to you. <laughs> this place is old. When you see tired and grungy and old over and over and over again, you know that it's time to do something.
0: Understood. Awesome. So before you became an expert on hotel renovations and embarked upon your career in construction, you were a bartender. Tell me what some of your favorite and least favorite things were about that job.
1: Um. So I worked in both big touristy places and little hole-in-the-wall bars, and I love them both for different reasons. I love the people that I waited on. I like that it was rare that you could really tell on the face of it when someone sits down, whether they're, you know, a professional or a college student, right? Like it was, everybody gets treated equally. You learn to smile in the face of someone who maybe isn't being so polite. So there, there are a million lessons to be learned. And I definitely realized at the time that I was picking a lot up. Right out of college, the money was great, and I couldn't really see turning that down for an entry-level job. So I stuck with it for a really long time. <laughs> I also really like the adrenaline of when it's busy, and then at the end of the day, the day is done, and you go home, and tomorrow is a brand new day. And that goes away when you get into a job that um, has responsibilities that linger beyond a, like an 8- or 12-hour shift.
0: That's interesting. I've talked to a couple different people who went from specifically front-of-house restaurant management to working for wine distributors. Mm -hmm. And it was that end-of-the-day thing that they talked about the most that like, when your shift is over at a restaurant, you're done, you can go home and be over. But if you have a territory and a quota to meet, you're thinking about it nonstop and the job never ends. It's really, that's an interesting thing. um, Like as we're continuing to deal with the labor crisis for somebody Mm -hmm. to say like, look, Hey, you can clock out and go home. You don't have to think about this anymore. You know what I mean?
1: Yep. Absolutely. I'd love the fact that it's still out there, right? It's still a job that you could go back to at any time.
0: I know you went to work at a flooring company because you kind of felt like it was time to get a grown-up job. My sister and I talk about this all the time, the fact that we both think we left so much money on the table when we were in our early career because we felt like we needed to stop waiting tables or stop bartending and become the boss, like be the manager. And looking back now, I'm wondering how you would advise a young adult or your kids or whoever about the same thing, like take a lower paying, but more prestigious or adulty seeming job or follow the money.
1: So I would say there's a season for everything, right? And there's definitely a time if you are coming out of college and you've got a lot of debt and you can make some quick money and pay that off, that might be one way to look at it. Or you can continue your education while you're working and making great money. That's fantastic. But I do feel like I lost some traction in my early career by staying in that role for so long. So I was bartending for about 10 years before I got into into a job with a flooring company and I was not looking for a job with a flooring company it just happened to open up I knew someone there I said sure I'll give it a try and I learned a lot of different things there in different roles but I would say just to remember there's a season for everything so and it's never too late to go find an adulting job
0: <laughs> <laughs> you started at continental contractors in sort of an administrative role I think your title was like assistant project manager or something like that And now you are chief operating officer. So did that just happen overnight? I'm just kidding. Can you (laughs) say a couple of the major milestones on that path? Like, What were some of the steps you took to get there?
1: So when I joined Continental in 2004, it was a very new company. It was only about a year and a half old at that point. And that gives a lot of opportunity to try different things and wear different hats when it's such a small company. It's like a startup where everybody's kind of doing a little bit of everything. So I came in and I was fortunate enough to be able to step up when opportunities arose. Like I learned to figure out where the hole was and fill it. I would say my whole career has kind of been built on finding the hole that needs to be filled and then filling it, which works for a while. But eventually you have to start finding other people who can fill the hole and support them in doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But when the economy tanked in 2009, 10, we all had to start doing cold calls to build up some business and everyone in the office hated doing it. I didn't mind it so much. So I started handling a lot of that and the business development just sort of evolved. So I became director of business development. Earlier in... When I first started at Continental, we were expanding into different states and needed to be licensed in those states. So the owner of the company, Pete, asked if somebody was willing to go get a license, get take the test and get the license for Florida. And I just wasn't smart enough to step backwards. So just kind of <laughs> left.
0: I have a hard time believing that. So you raised your <laughs> hand and said yes.
1: So I said, Well, I'll give it a shot, as long as I won't get fired if I don't pass it the first time. And I figured. <laughs> it's a couple of books, you study, you take the test. It ended up being like 20 books and two straight days of testing. Um, And I did pass that one, which meant that when we moved into different states, um, I was kind of the go-to license getter for those two. So with the exception of one or two states that were licensed in, I hold those licenses for continental contractors. And then um, I went from being in an APM role to business development, which I loved. And it's still my favorite part of the job now. I still do that. Pete and I kind of tag team the business development. And then it just became clear that as the company grew, I think we're up to 80, about 80 people now. Wow. Yeah. There was a need for sort of running of the business side of things. So we have a great CFO, we have a CEO and Pete Welsh, and there's just the processes and procedures that needed some kind of tweaking and digging into and Change management and evaluating our systems and making sure that we can work as efficiently as possible.
0: And that's where the software engineer part of your uh, secret personality comes in because I know you have played a huge role in building out kind of the tech stack and those processes for your company.
1: Yeah, I am a complete nerd at heart. Like, I know just enough to get myself in trouble. But not enough to really like take off in a career in tech. But (laughs) we just, you know, we tried different CRMs out. We we tried a bunch of different things out, and they. It's very hard to find something out of the box that was working for us. So, I just have kind of built a business management platform through Airtable. But it is, it's like the most complicated cloud-based spreadsheet that has integrations with other apps. So I th- I think it's a work of art and it's beautiful and other people <laughs> look at it and they're like, I don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. So we're working on getting a little bit more um, professional with our systems now so we can kind of get out of the, the Renee world of Airtable.
0: When you talked about business development, what do you think was different about you versus the other people in the office? You said that Everybody had to do cold calls. They all hated it and you didn't mind it. Why do you think you didn't mind it? I mean, everyone hates cold calls.
1: Everybody hates cold calls. I didn't love them, but I didn't mind them because I just have learned over time that people are just people. And you know, a negative response to a call could have nothing to do with me and it could have nothing to do with the company I'm calling on behalf of. And also... Hospitality has some of the best people ever. So just by our general nature, I think most people in the hospitality industry are open to at least having a conversation, right? So more often than not, I actually got an explanation. Hey, look, we don't have anything right now. Let me keep you in mind for something moving forward down the road it's just and then we started building relationships with those calls and going to conferences and meeting people in person and traveling to their offices and i mean that i've made some phenomenal friendships in this industry starting with just picking up the phone making a phone call
0: I wonder if it has something to do with what you said before about bartending that you could stand in front of somebody and never make the right prejudgment because they could be a student or they could be a lawyer or they could be you know you never sort of know what's going on I wonder if that was an important part of your business development training that may not seem so on the surface
1: I think it definitely is. And I've learned too, you know, there's a hierarchy within a hotel renovation project, you know, there's an owner or a developer and a third-party project management firm and an architect and designer and the contractor and the subcontractors. Just because there's that sort of hierarchy of how the money flows, that doesn't mean there's a hierarchy of person, <laughs> right? So the the owner or developer could be somebody who lives down the street or could be somebody who my kids play with and same with the subcontractor. It just They're all just people. They're all just people.
0: Your company does strictly hotel renovations. What do you think is the value of staying in your lane like that and finding a niche versus, I don't know, going and renovating malls or something?
1: So hotel renovations are a completely different animal than any other kind of commercial construction. There's really nothing that compares to renovating a hotel that's open and operating and has guests sleeping in beds while you're there. Okay. So our project managers and our superintendents and our subcontractors, they all understand there's a sense of urgency to complete on time, right? Like the wedding is booked and the rooms are sold and you better get done and out of there <laughs> for that party to come in. And we have to be done by the time, by the schedule that we've agreed to. And everybody that we work with, our subcontractors, our, our own team, and even the designers and architects that specialize in hotels, everybody understands that. They know they can recognize anomalies, whether it's in the design or in the building itself, pretty quickly. And then you build a rapport within this team. Like hospitality renovation, this is a really incestuous industry. Like the person who's selling me tile one week is my client next month and maybe working for our company
0: in. <laughs> so it's just really building those relationships. Because Continental is a hospitality construction company, I know that you approach the business differently, maybe than other construction companies do. Can you talk about the business practices, the mindset that differentiates Continental and sort of makes you more hospitable? So, when we
1: come into a property, we feel that we're a guest in someone else's house. Like not only are there guests literally living there while we're there, the housekeeping and the maintenance staff, they were there before we got there. They will be there maintaining it after we leave. And so the intent is for us to just come in and make things a little bit better. So we're fixing problems that were there before. We're making the, the room look more updated and clean and beautiful. And then we want to nicely hand that over to someone who was already there, not make it harder for them. So... Because of that, we know we can't just bulldoze our way through a project. We have to be on time, but we have to do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the property any more than necessary. There's always a little bit of a disruption. We just know that we want to try to minimize that and build relationships over time. We're going to see the same architect, designer, project manager, owner housekeeping staff, director of engineering, we are going to see that person again at some point in the future, whether it's at that property or a different property,
0: we'll see them again.
1: So we know that we want to build that rapport and have that trust so that they'll call us the next time they need a renovation.
0: How do you think the challenges in the greater world impact your business? So for example you know, lots of folks are talking about inflation right now, labor shortages, supply chain, climate, all that stuff. How do those things play out in your business?
1: All the things. (laughs) (laughs) Inflation, it sucks. The cost of construction is super high right now. Interest rates are high. So it's harder to get financing to buy and then renovate a hotel. Salaries are higher. The cost of everything is just, it's high. So yeah, that's definitely impacting our business. Labor shortages make it harder to get quotes from subcontractors, unless typically our known subcontractor base that we go to all the time, they're still available because they know what it means to work with us, right? They value that relationship and that loyalty. But we have owners who are looking to save costs and they want us to go outside of the box and get more pricing and we can't always get that pricing easily because everyone is busy. Everyone is just super busy, and they're they're all working on a shorter staff than they had before COVID. Supply chain—I mean, that that one's pretty obvious. It's so much harder to get materials, and that can delay not just the project itself, but it can delay finalizing the design documents. Um, and it's such a moving oh, target. Oh, I didn't
0: think about that because if you if this is designed with some sort of something, and then you can't get it you have to redesign. Oh gosh. Right.
1: So a lot of times we'll do a model room, which is great and it looks beautiful, but then that small amount of tile, for example, was readily available for the model room, but now is not available for the rollout and has to either be air shipped or manufactured. And now the lead time is much longer. Whoa. And it's just a really, there's probably some pattern to it that makes sense to someone, but it it sometimes feels very random what is suddenly available or not available. You know, at one point it was red paint and another point, it's a certain kind of tile. Like it just, it's all over the map and it's hard to predict what the next thing will be. That's hard to get your hands on.
0: Huh. That's interesting. Red paint. Yeah. something to do with the dye that's used in the paint. So when something like that happens, like, I don't know, I'm dumb, so just be cool. But there's a tile backsplash or something like that that you can't get the supplies for. Does that result in a change order? Is that a complete redesign? Like, How does that play out in the process?
1: Yeah, so change orders are really just a change to the contract total or the contract time. Um, And it can be for anything from unforeseen conditions. We don't, something's behind the wall. We don't know is behind the wall and now we have to fix it. I see. Or a change in the amount of work the owner says, oh, now I want you to also handle these public restrooms and this ballroom. Or it could be that a hurricane hits and now it's, we have to shut the project down and we're delayed by a week and then we can start back up. If you're fortunate, that's all it is. So There are many different ways to look at change orders, but the conversation gets more complicated now. It's just a matter of managing everybody's expectations. They're harder to manage now than they used to be. Um, So, a year ago at the lodging conference, we were talking about construction costs being like 10 to 15% higher than they were in 2019. This year, that total was like 25 to 30% and higher in some markets, right? So with the changing in price being so fast, it's really hard to have that conversation with an owner. Hey, you priced this up in 2019. Just take a quick look at it again and let me know what the updated (laughs) pricing is. Well... Plus it's 30%. 30% higher now. <laughs> right, right. Yikes. So, when that happens so quickly within the project, you know, the owner wants to lock in pricing for as long as possible. We need to cover ourselves. Our subcontractors or our vendors are not able to lock in pricing. The container prices for shipping have come down substantially. They're definitely not to pre COVID pricing yet, but it's just changes so quickly that it's important to keep that conversation happening constantly. What are the implications of a delay? The extended general conditions, will that outweigh air freighting something to the job site to get it faster? Um, so it's just a conversation that has to constantly be being had. Like, there should be no, I think somebody just said it last week at the conference, but There should be no penalty for bad news, right? There's going to be some bad news at some point, but there shouldn't be any penalty for delivering it. And it should be delivered early, as early as possible.
0: So, that was going to be my next question about this. Do you find that the folks that you're working with have more acceptance of the situation when you get into this pricing change or another availability change, stuff like that? Do you find that people seem to get it, or are you fighting a lot of battles?
1: They are getting it for sure, but everybody has a fiscal responsibility to someone else, right? So we want to protect ourselves and our subcontractors and make sure that everybody can make a a livable wage, right? No, we're not out to screw anybody over by making them give us their service or their product at the cheapest possible rate. If we did that, we wouldn't have great people to work with. There are several layers between the ultimate developer or owner of a property and the the third-party project manager is responsible for protecting that asset. So everyone is trying to just make sure that they're protecting their assets as much as possible. But yes, I think everybody understands that it's a crazy world we live in right now. And they're a little more open to at least having the conversations.
0: Do you see a light at the end of this tunnel? Or do you think that this sort of volatility is here to stay.
1: I don't think the pricing's ever going completely back to 2019 levels, but I think it'll definitely come down
0: in the next 18 months or so. Fingers crossed for all concerned. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some practical, tangible, specific things to try either in their businesses or in their lives. You may not want to answer this question, but are there things hotel operators should do differently to either make their renovation dollars go further, like make their reno last longer, or to make it less expensive to renovate? Are there some common things that you all see over and over again that if hotel operators would just stop doing ABC, their building would stay in better shape?
1: Yeah, and I, I don't think it's so much to do with materials, the exact design or the materials. It's more, it's kind of counterintuitive. You think that if you bid this project out to 10 10 contractors, you're gonna get a great price. You're somebody for sure will give you a great price. But what ends up happening is that we'll look around, all of us will look at who's on that bid list and go, okay, well, instead of having like a, a 30% chance of being awarded this, now I have a five or a 10, particularly if it's somebody that we know comes in low, or if we know that the intent for this is to go with the low bidder, on top of that, you add the layer of subcontractors who go, okay, well, I went from having a a certain percent chance of winning it when it was only three general contractors bidding it. Now there's 40 plumbers involved (laughs) and they've got a one in 40 chance of, of being awarded the project. So it just really kind of waters down the pricing and we don't... With everybody being short on staff and everybody already being busy, it's hard to put the time and the effort into spending, really digging into a project if we know that we're one of 10 bidders. Now, if we're one of three, that makes more sense. And we have a much more likely chance of being awarded. So if you go a step further and you have the ability to negotiate with a contractor that you trust and you know, and get them under contract early for pre-construction services, then we really do have time to work with you as a partner and say, okay, we know that these materials are going to be hard to get a hold of, or this is kind of a crazy price for this shower curtain rod. Let's work with the designer and figure out something that may be keeping with the design intent, but is more readily available or is more in line with pricing.
0: Do you think that design trends move from residential to hospitality, like hotel designers see things in residential design and try to, to replicate it in hotels? Or do you think it's more often now that homeowners see something in a hotel and they're like, Oh, I want that in my house. I want my, my house to feel like a hotel. Or is it a mix?
1: I think it's a mix. Um, so full disclaimer, I am not a designer. That is not my wheelhouse. (laughs) I couldn't even play one on TV. (laughs) Fortunately, nobody can see right now in my house, like the design, there's no design. It's just sort of
0: (laughs) same. My um, design is all like, uh, antique store, flea market, uh, whatever. I get it.
1: Yeah. So I think, It really depends on the brand. So some of the luxury brands want to feel like really upscale residential. And some of the extended stay want to feel like comfortable and well-priced residential, right? So you you want to feel like you're kind of at home for the time that you're there. But then you've got other super cool brands like Aloft and Graduate. I don't think their intent is to feel residential. I think the intent is to feel like you're at home, but not at your house, right? Like you're comfortably part of this little community in the hotel and your house feels cozy or your room feels cozy and homey, but totally different than what you have in your own home. Because no way could most people live with some of these crazy design trends that are in some of the really more funky design brands.
0: Graduates, a great example of that because every single photograph I see of a graduate hotel, I'm like, That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. But to your point, if I had, I don't know, a giant college football mascot painted on my wall, I would probably wake up screaming every night. So yes, I get that. That's a good example for sure. Right. So we have reached the fortune telling portion of our show. Now's the time to predict the future, maybe wave our magic wands a little bit, and then we'll come back later and see if we're right. What is a prediction you have either for the future of hotel design or hotel renovations?
1: Okay. So I've thought about this for years and I wish that... It's a wish, I guess, and not necessarily a prediction, but um, I wish we could move beyond like the typical layout of either a king or two queens, right? So especially to compete with the Airbnbs out there, if you've ever traveled as a family of five, you know what I'm talking about. The The typical room layout does not work and there's not room to function with a cot thrown in there. So I just wish there was more flexibility in the configuration of rooms. Like, you know, there's cruise ships that'll have a a bunk drop down out of the ceiling or um, furniture that turns into a bed really quickly that can just be folded back up into a couch or into a chair. So some of that can be done with furniture, but I wish that there was just more flexibility in the types of rooms that properties at the same property can offer. So, you know, maybe there's more family suites or girl weekend suites, girls getaway suites, or, you know, just the type of room that you want to stay in when you're traveling with your family versus traveling with your husband versus traveling with a girls getaway. That's different. And if you're a loyalist to Marriott or Hilton. You know, being able to kind of pick within a property what type of room you want, I think would be great. Um, I love that Hilton has finally done their guaranteed connector rooms. That's my favorite thing ever. It's Um, so
0: good, isn't it? I was going to mention it. I was at it before you did. I mean, that is something that people have been asking for my literal entire career. Yep. And the fact that we just figured out how to guarantee that is pretty shocking. But pretty awesome.
1: Yes. Uh, Yep. I think it's fantastic. And another cool one is Sweetness, the app where you can kind of go online and look for sweets because you can't typically go look at the sweets in most hotel properties and even see what they have available. But with this app, Sweetness, you can go in and see all different types of configurations. So we've used that a few times and it's been great.
0: Oh, that's cool. We'll have to link that in the show notes. You are a frequent conference attendee. And I know that you've witnessed sort of the evolution of hotel investment conferences from a really male-dominated situation to be much more diverse now. Yes. If Mm -hmm. you could wave a magic wand and change something else about conferences, besides the fact that now women go, what would it be? Oh, I have a few
1: they're so different
0: some of the conferences
1: that we go to are very different from each other and i love them all for different reasons uh, i guess for if i had to pick one thing that most of them could use a little more of it's more variety in topic and panels and guest speakers preferably from outside of the industry right like again seems kind of counterintuitive but i have heard the same people talk about the same topics for 15 years, right? And with very few exceptions, it seems to rotate through like literally the same people and the same topics in the same time slot.
0: But my sense is that most of those speaker opportunities are pay to play. So they're given to the sponsors.
1: Sure. But I think you could probably implement some sort of you or can only speak once every three years, right? So find (laughs) someone else in your company who
0: can talk, bring someone else up. Yes, that's a great idea.
1: But I do love the ones I've been to where they'll bring people in from completely outside of the industry to talk about their business or their industry. And it's so inspirational to kind of hear ideas and tech and advancements and changes that took place in completely different industries
0: and how to apply that in our own industry. I love that idea. What's next for you and what's next for your company?
1: Oh boy. So I don't know. Continental is super exciting right now. We're in a growth phase, I would say. Um, We're busy. We just opened an office in Florida last week. We have remote offices in Nevada and Washington state. And then we have our main offices in Maryland and California. Wow. We have some great new APMs that are kind of coming up with a lot of promise and we're really sort of focused on streamlining our processes and procedures and kind of trying to make sure that we can provide the best the best service and the best outcome for our clients in a, a smart way like really focusing on working smarter and reevaluating some of those we don't want to reinvent the wheel right but maybe we can move out of an excel spreadsheet <laughs> <laughs> for me I, I mean my role is really in support of those project teams I'm literally here to just give them whatever backup I can to help their jobs be easier to do and help them work smarter, to back them up with the clients when needed. Um, so I'm, I'm really, honestly, I feel like I'm so super lucky to have the job that I have and to work with the people that I work with. Um, and I've had the benefit of being given a ton of opportunities within Continental, and it's fun to be able to turn around and sort of watch other people have those same opportunities as we grow.
0: Okay, folks, before we tell Renee goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told.
1: Going down.
0: Renee, what is a story you would only tell on the loading dock?
1: Okay, so this is a different type of story, but... Um years and years ago my parents had the opportunity to be hoteliers and were asked to invest in a fishing resort on the coast of Colombia South America. Wow. So a uh, very very long story short kind of packed everything up and went to go build a hotel. The deal fell through. The whole thing fell apart. But the town where this resort was about was supposed to be built was very remote. And so when the plane landed there and we got off, they had never seen blonde haired, blue eyed, or green eyed kids before or adults.
0: Wait, so this was when you were a kid. You were there. I was a kid. Oh my goodness.
1: So we landed, all the kids came running out of the little schoolhouse to like pet our hair. And we had packed up everything we owned and had it in boxes. And so uh, somehow the the local people that were there knew the gringos were coming. And so they said, Oh yeah, your house is right down the beach. It was like five kilometers down the beach. So they help us, you know, there's a whole village of people carrying our luggage and our bags and they get us down there. And it turns out to be a thatched roof period. <laughs> End of story.
0: <laughs> oh, you mean a thatched roof, no thatched walls, roof,
1: nothing else, no walls, no oh. floors, no running water, oh. no electricity. So We probably would have left immediately, but the plane, the plane only landed there every six weeks. What? (laughs) So, so we were there for six weeks. Um, the guy, the, like I said, the deal fell through the guy ran off with my parents' money that they were investing. And so we had like lace curtains and blenders and nothing to do with them. So we ended up building an outhouse with a shower, with a five gallon cracker tin to take a shower. Are you serious?
0: This is your first renovation. (laughs)
1: right? (laughs) We built, uh, my chore was to like walk two miles back into, so maybe like a football field in one direction was the rainforest and in the other direction was the ocean and we were in the sand in the middle. So my job was to walk back with a bucket into the rainforest to the first freshwater well, get the well water in a couple buckets, bring it up. Boil it, drain mosquito larvae off of it, so that we could use it for drinking and cooking and everything. Oh
0: my goodness! How old were you? Nine. What? And so then did you have? Siblings? And my brother was a year old. Okay.
1: Yep, I had a one-year-old brother. Oh
0: my god! So,
1: so word got around that we would basically gotten ripped off, and we were kind of stuck there for six weeks until the plane came back. And so we got a visit one time from the local witch doctor from in the jungle, like the Indian tribe that lived there. And he had his two bodyguards with him. And so this is all being translated from the local Indian dialect to Spanish to English and then back. So there's a little bit getting lost in translation. Sure. But basically he he kindly offered to like put a spell on the person who stole our money and make it so he never walked again. <laughs> and my parents are like, Oh, thank you so much, but no, that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna pass on that. <laughs> Um, but in the process, my mom went to get like some toys for my brother to put him to bed. And do you remember Teddy Ruxpin? Yes. Okay. Well, my brother had one of those and she like had her arms full and she kind of squeezed it too hard. And Teddy Ruxpin started talking and the witch doctor and his bodyguards had never seen a stuffed animal before, much less one that talks and moves. And so they had yanked that thing out of her hands and totally ripped it to shreds with machetes and had her up against a tree with a machete to her neck thinking that that was our voodoo doll that we were like sicking on them (gasps) so again multiple translations of trying to explain like it's just fur and a toy oh my goodness so yeah the Indian tribe there ended up being great they would bring us lemons and we would give them things from our luggage that we didn't need and they had literally no use for like light bulb or like I said, a blender. I think we gave them at one point they, Like they had there was no electricity. They literally lived back in the jungle, but they were great and helped us figure out like how to cook, how to keep the little mosquito gnat things from the sand from biting us to death. And, um, when the plane came back, we got back on it,
0: came back to the United States. That is the most outrageous <laughs> tale. I, I, I feel a little bit struck speechless. I have to be honest with you. (laughs) So did anything ever happen to the scam artist that took your parents' money?
1: Nope. Never heard from him. Never saw him again. Oh
0: my gosh. So they just went back to where they had come from and started over? I have no idea where he went. No, you, your family.
1: Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. We just, we moved back. Actually, we came back to, we were living in Illinois at the time, but then a year and a half later we ended up going to Guatemala and my parents ran an orphanage for two years in Guatemala.
0: Your parents are filled with adventure. Maybe they need to be my next guest on this show. (laughs) Renee Bagshaw. thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners learned a lot about hotel renovation and construction. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 57. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen.
1: Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode.